Dear God, we come expectant tonight that you will speak to us through your word. I pray that our hearts will be humble and teachable as we come before it. Amen. So we've come to the end of our studies in 2 Timothy. And endings often bring with them a lot of motion. I can remember the extreme withdrawal symptoms I felt when I finally got to the end of Lord of the Rings. Or I know quite a lot of people here at Kirkpatrick are going to be doing legs or parts of the Belfast Marathon. And you see the emotion when the marathon runner finishes the race. He gets to the end of it and crosses the line. But then, of course, there's that most emotional ending of all, the coming to end of a life. And that is the tone with which the book of 2 Timothy ends, that most emotional of ending. Paul is imprisoned. He's been suffering. And within a matter of weeks of finishing this letter, it's expected that Paul died. Now, 2 Timothy, it's his last letter and contains his last recorded words. Last words are something that we like to record and remember. They can be quite poignant. They sometimes sum up something about a character It tells us about their life, their deepest desires. Alexander the Great, I think he's got some great last words. He was a mighty warrior in ancient Greece and on his deathbed asked, who's going to succeed you? With his last breath, he manages to say this, the strongest. I thought that was a pretty epic last words. So when we look at Paul's last words, are they going to be as epic? Can he leave such a great message for his struggling church? Well, I want to quickly trace through everything that we've sort of seen in the book of 2 Timothy to build up to these last words so we can make sense of them. So when we started the series Pass It On back in January, we started by drawing these comparisons between the Ephesian church and the church in Northern Ireland today. In both, it seems that the gospel is struggling. This idea of preaching the words, you know, that's now secondary. The gospel as a word, it's sneered at, it's seen as a bad word, or something we should be embarrassed of. But as we began, we saw Paul saying, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel or of those who proclaim the gospel, even though it's a message of suffering and of weakness and of something that our culture laughs at. But it's this gospel of suffering that we pass on to others. And then Paul went on in chapter 2 to explain that it will take some hard work to do that. Of course we realize we've got to do the hard work first to get the prize. And that hard work is to be in handling the word of truth. And we thought a little bit about how we're to do that. We're to do that diligently, but also in such a way that doesn't needlessly offend others and ruin our hearers. And then last time when Christoph was speaking, we heard about how the word has the power to transform There will be opposition. Opposition will come against us, but we can stand up against it knowing we can be sure in the word and also sure in where we've heard it from in that gospel lineage. So, so far, we've had suffering. We've had opposition. The gospel's been ridiculed. Paul, he's now seen as irrelevant. He's cast to the side. So what's his killer solution? These epic last words to save the struggling church. There's a sense of a drum roll. We build anticipation. Preach the word. That's the charge, the simple charge. And that's what Paul thinks will save a church on the slide. Now you might not be convinced. Paul's been preaching all his life. Where's it got him? 
look, he's not a success. He's abandoned. He's alone. There's not much of a church to speak, speak about around him. Or if you want to argue from a contemporary setting, Northern Ireland has had no shortage of preachers over the last 100 years. What state's the church in now? The church is quickly shrinking. But let's look at the Bible and its argument as to why this is the right approach for the future and why preaching is so important, not just for us as we come to Kirkpatrick to find out, but also for Belfast, the wider city, and the rest of Northern Ireland. To do this, I want to look at a few objections that people raise about preaching. And I want to answer them in such a way as to show that we can still support and be fully behind the preaching of God's word. So first, what's the significance? If you look with me to chapter one, uh, or no, to verse one of chapter four, it's a very grand verse with some really grand language. And it has this dramatic quality. It's like a courtroom drama. As if Timothy, he's standing in the dock and you've got Paul, the court clerk, announcing in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now, why does Paul bother to set a scene like this? Is it just to add more gravitas to his words? No, he's saying these things because they are true and because the implications that lead from them are huge. So being conscious of two things here really matters. It's God's presence and Christ's appearing to judge. See those two things in the verse there. So having someone's presence with us, that makes a real difference to how we behave. So when the teacher's in the class, the pupils, they're sitting there, they're as good as gold. Well, sometimes. But when the teacher leaves, goes down the corridor to the store, the pupils, they're on the desk, they're throwing paper airplanes, they're swinging from the light bulbs. Likewise, being conscious of someone's appearing, that too makes a big difference to our behavior. If I know I've got friends coming over for dinner, I'm going to make a bit of an effort to tidy up the place, going to stock the fridge with some healthy food, put on some nice clothes, and depending on how much of an impression I want to make, I'll maybe even hoover the carpet. So knowing that we're in the presence of God, that's going to make a huge difference to how we behave. We're almost, as Paul describes here, standing before him, accountable, like in a courtroom. If you're conscious that you're accountable to God for what he's about to task you with, you're going to pay attention and you're going to take it very seriously. Also, knowing Jesus is going to appear, but he's not just going to appear, he's going to appear as a king and as a judge, as verse 1 tells us, that's going to make a huge difference. So if we're looking to the future, conscious that Jesus is appearing and looking for his return, we're going to understand the solemnity of that. And we're going to act in a way knowing that we're going to be judged by him on the basis to how we obey the command that's about to come. I want to take time at the beginning of this sermon to, to set the scene, to point out the solemnity just like Paul does, that this is a big deal, this charge. So what's the significance only that the God and judge of the whole universe, who we stand in front of, has just commanded it. So with this setting ready for us, Paul gives this charge, preach the word, in verse 2. So I want to introduce our second complaint. Isn't preaching irrelevant in this day and age? Now the word preach, 
has so many negative connotations for us, doesn't it? Don't you dare preach at me. It's sort of a sense of don't get high and mighty. Don't tell me what to do. You can't say what's right and wrong. But also preaching is just associated with being boring or just completely irrelevant. This means nothing to me. But Paul doesn't have this view of preaching. His charge continues with the words, be prepared in season and out of season. Be prepared, be ready, hurry, don't get caught out. Some translations add the word with urgency. I think I quite like that description, the urgency and the importance of preaching. Why? Because what is said in biblical preaching is a matter of life or death. A matter of obedience to the king who is coming to judge or of ignoring him and facing his judgment and wrath. Now, since January, I've been on eight flights, and that's pretty awful for my carbon footprint. But being on so many, I've got used to hearing these following instructions. Ladies and gentlemen, the cabin crew would like your attention now to talk you through the safety features of this aircraft, even if you are a frequent flyer. Please also take the time to read the safety card located in the seat pocket in front of you. Now, if you've no particular fear of flying like me, then at this is the moment, you reach for your book, you take it out, you start to read that, and you don't bother with the safety announcement. You're not going to read the safety card because, well, that's boring, isn't it? However, if I hear a loud bang, the oxygen masks, they drop down, and then I hear another announcement over the tannoy, brace, brace, then I'm going to start reading that safety card like my life depended on it because my life would depend on it. At that moment, I'm not going to complain. This safety card is boring. Because I'm going to understand the context. My life depends on it. So to say preaching is boring, it doesn't understand the context. Yes, it may very well be badly delivered, difficult to engage with, conceptually tough or not very stylish. But if you understand the solemn context with which it's delivered, the word of God being opened and explained... And knowing that we have to appear before that judge, the King, Jesus, then you're going to listen like your life depended on it. That's why Paul can say the words preach in season and out of season. Because there's never a bad time for this urgent message. We might say in our culture today, this is an off season for preaching. People don't want to be preached at. They don't want to hear this message. They don't have an appetite for it. For Timothy, it must have totally seemed like off-season. He was getting a lot of grief from the content of his preaching. People were going to other ideas, other things that just seemed more modern, more contemporary. But neither we nor Timothy have an excuse to leave preaching behind. We think our culture is a tough one to preach in. Let's think about the Apostle Paul. Paul was stoned. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was driven out of pretty much every city that he went to preach in. And what does Paul say after all this? At an end of a life of suffering, in season or out of season, preaching of God's word must happen. I think we've got another answer to this objection that preaching is irrelevant based on what Paul says the aim of this preaching is to be. See, preaching is to correct, rebuke, and encourage that's what this passage tells us. Now, by those markers, preaching, if done right, is incredibly relevant. 
Because these are words that speak of and expect transformation in the listeners. If your life was transformed, I think you could include that as something that's relevant to you. This verse also, it reminds us back to verse 16 of chapter 3, which we looked at last time. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, there's no coincidence between the similarities in the language in these verses, because when proper preaching happens, it's the Bible opened up and explained. See, this passage is a logical flow on from what we looked at last time, because the word is so powerful. If that's what has the power to transform, then of course that's what Timothy wants to preach. Of course that's what we want to open and have shared with people, and we want to sit under ourselves. See, it's not the preacher or the church or anything like that that brings about the transformation. The power is in the Word of God, explained and applied. I want tonight to actually give you an encouragement on this point. You've come tonight to hear preaching. So you must, to some extent, already understand this. That coming here tonight is relevant to you, that makes a difference, and that in some way this could change you. That it's going to make a difference the rest of your week in your walk with God, but also how you interact with other people. So what I want to do, I want to really encourage you to continue with that. I want you to be able to encourage others to do the same. You may feel less confident in your own ability to stand up and proclaim the gospel, but all of us can demonstrate a belief in what this passage teaches and about the centrality of the Bible preached by inviting others and encouraging others to come with us and hear the Bible opened up and explained. That'd be a really strong way to put into practice the command of verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. Because there's nothing more relevant in this day and age than the Bible clearly explained and applied. So complaint number three. Why is it such hard work for us? That it's hard, we can't deny that. All of us find sharing the truth with others difficult. And there's something in us that cringes when the truth is put upon other people. Well, let's see in verses 3 to 8 why that is, but also what we're to do about that, how we're to understand that. So in these verses, we see two contexts. The first context is a cultural one. So if you look at verse 3, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and they'll turn aside to myths. Does that sound familiar? See the problem that Paul sees for Timothy? People wouldn't want to know the truth. They wouldn't want to listen to any claims of truth. Instead, they'll only listen to what they want to hear. I just think that's an incredibly contemporary description. That's exactly what our culture today says. And I think it's why it's so difficult for us to proclaim the truth of God to our generation. It makes it really hard work. This time last year, I was on a university campus doing a survey about the subject of truth. About 50% of the students said that they didn't believe in such a thing as absolute truth. Truth as a concept, no. 
The other 50% said, if there was a truth, we could probably never know it. That really saddened me that so many people could say things like this. But I shouldn't have been surprised. You don't need a clipboard and a survey sheet to know that this is what our culture thinks today. If truths are inconvenient, people ignore them. Think of health warnings. Think of climate warnings. Things like this. If a truth is inconvenient, people will ignore it. I read a really sad story this week about a 40-year-old dancer who is dying from cancer. But she just refused to admit it was true. She wouldn't tell her boyfriend she was even ill for fear that he would leave her and their marriage plans would be ruined. I was desperately sad because she didn't want to believe this truth. She went so far as to refuse all her treatments. Of course, this sped up her decline and she died alone without her boyfriend even knowing she was ill. If the truth, that wasn't what she wanted to hear. So she cut herself off from it, ignored it, and it did her great harm. And that's how a lot of people can be with God's truth. That makes our life, or our work, of passing it on to them really hard. So we need to know how to deal with that. Now, in some ways, when we look at this passage, it's encouraging to know that an allergy to the truth, that's not a new problem. That's the very problem that Timothy is facing here that Paul goes in length to describe. So it's, a, so it's encouraging that we have an appropriate solution given to us in the Bible for that very case. And that solution is not to give in, not to change the message, but to continue to preach the truth. It's not a very clever solution, but it is the right solution. I really appreciate actually how realistic this passage is. It says people will be hard to the truth. We needn't be surprised by the reaction when it comes, don't preach at me. The Bible tells us to expect that. But also tells us not to be put off by that response and to keep proclaiming truth. Of course, how we do this is very important. Verse 2, with great patience and gentle instruction. And verse 5, keep your head in all situations. Don't get wound up and going into arguments. And we thought about that a few weeks ago. We look further in verse 5. Through this and in response to this rejection, we endure hardship that will come your way. That leads on well to the second context and our final point. And that's the context of Paul's suffering and imminent death. How does Paul's context deal with that complaint that we raised why it's such hard work for us in preaching and for others to come and listen to it. Suffering for the gospel, that's never far away when we're studying this letter of 2 Timothy. That's because it's an ever-present reality in the Christian life. For gospel growth to happen, effort must be put in. That's why it's such hard work. Like when we looked at the, re- the farmer, he must do the work first before he can receive the reward. Although that picture sounds quite nice, the pastoral scene, the farmer working hard in the summer sun, maybe his loyal sheepdog beside him. In a way, it's a bit like a Hobus advert. But Paul's own story, that's not so idyllic. The story that he then outlines in verses 9 to 18, it's heartbreaking to see that this is the end of the life of the great apostle Paul. Demas, a once loyal friend, 
He's now deserted him because he loved this world. Christians and Titus, they're off to do other work. He's also, he's so impoverished, he doesn't have a coat. Winter is fast approaching. He doesn't have any of his parchments or scrolls. And amid this, he's had great opposition against him. Alexander, the metal worker, has done him great harm because of the message that Paul preaches. And when it comes to going to court, this must have been really tough. No friends turned up. He had no defense. He just knew everyone was ashamed of him. Suffering for the gospel is not pleasant. So why does Paul continue with it? Why does he endure? I think I want to bring us back to our first point. It's because of the presence of the Lord and the coming appearing of Jesus Christ, the King, to judge. In verse 17, Paul knows that the Lord is by his side. He knows his presence. Even when all others fail, the betrayal of friends, that still hurts. But he's able to manage that bit of strength to continue because he comes from God, his deliverer, and Paul knows he's going to be taken safely home to that heavenly kingdom. But also Paul is constantly thinking ahead to the appearing of Christ to come. In verse 1 and 8, there's sort of the bookends, if you like, of that main teaching part of this passage. Paul speaks of Christ's appearance. It's the first thing, the last thing that Paul thinks about. In verse 6, Paul says he's being poured out like a drink offering. He knows he's nearly spent. He knows the end of his life is near. He says, my time has come for my departure, like a ship getting ready to set sail, to release the ropes, to pull away from the harbor. Staring at such an end, Paul could just despair, couldn't he? He could be fearful. You'd understand that response. But instead, Paul looks forward to what's in store for him. Let's read verse 8 together. It's it's just so encouraging. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And that hope and that expectation, that can be yours. That can be your hope and expectation too. I know that because look at the end of the verse. The crown of righteousness is given not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If you long for the appearing of Jesus, for him to bring his kingdom and his judgment finally to the earth, then you'll enjoy the victor's prize, the reward for all of that hard work. It will be worth it. This is how we're finishing off our series, this Pass On series with this reminder of why we can keep going, why we can continue to pass it on. We thought about the ways we do that in church. We thought about how we preach from the front and how we can support and make sure that ministry continues, but also those of us who are involved in different ministries in the church, the different opportunities we have there to pass it on to the next generation. But also in our own families, it may not seem exactly like a preaching that you would at the front, is that explaining and applying that proclamation of God's word into that context too. So hopefully we've seen why we can pass it on. We don't have to be afraid to preach the word in what may seem like an off-season to us now. We don't have to be ashamed of this gospel and its message, of the suffering that may accompany it and the weakness that it seems to hold. 
Because we know when we face the hard work of this gospel, that when we come out the other side, there is a reward. There is the crown of righteousness. And Jesus, the judge, when we stand before him, will reward us our prize. Let's pray together.